On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Thank you. I just want to uh, say, um, since it's the last time I've been on my feet, thank you so much for your welcome um, this weekend. I've had an absolutely marvellous time. Um, sorry not to have had opportunity to say hello to everybody while I've been here, but I'll certainly be going back to Stag, which is the local name for our church, and uh, saying what a great time I've had here. And no doubt there'll be uh, uh, some of our members, there are normally some of our members who drift south towards London uh, when they're finished in Cambridge, uh, looking for employment like Dick Whittington. And... Uh, uh, I hope they come your way. Um, now then, John chapter 6 and verse 60 and following, let me ask you a worrying question. What, what would you think if numbers at your uh, church, at Christ Church, just plummeted? Uh, just, just imagine there's a Sunday when only half the usual number of people turn up and the week after that there are even fewer. And you can imagine your staff picking over this in the staff meeting. Um, whenever it is during, during the week and they're just having that review and they're trying to figure out what's going on and various suggestions come in well maybe it's, it's getting too cold the heating system isn't working it's a, it's a nasty physical experience on a Sunday maybe we're not getting the music right maybe we haven't got the time of the service right or something like that Okay, so you're picking over all this stuff but anyway thought, think what you want to do is a bit of evidence based stuff so you, you do a little bit of a question, you get in touch with the people who've left, and you find out that in fact what uh, it was that uh, has driven them away was the message. What was the matter with the message? Well, it's too hard line and narrow, and it's not what people want. I wonder how you'd feel about that. Well, that's what happened to Jesus here. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And actually their problem, their accusation is stated in verse 60. This is a hard teaching, as if it was sort of hard line. In fact, it's the first word in the Greek sentence, hard is this teaching. And actually, although we've seen some wonderful promises, if we go back through the chapter, we can see a note of dissent from what Jesus is saying, indeed grumbling. And it's not difficult to see why this has happened. It might just be that inwardly, some of us, as we've listened to this teaching, have found ourselves, at a very private level, struggling with some of it. There are three sets of bad reactions in the chapter. 
Let me read to you again verse 35 and following. Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've you've seen me and still you don't believe. So there's a note of uh, not believing there. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then you see how that went down. Verse 41, at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We've known him. Uh, since he was a kid. Uh, we knew him at infant school. We've seen him kicking a football around the yard. Uh, we've seen him do this and that. We saw him grow up working with his dad as a carpenter. This is absurd. How can he now say, verse 41, I came down from heaven. We know his address, where he lives, who his parents are. I rather skipped over the answer that Jesus gives immediately. Just to give you a synopsis, verses 43 and following, stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, in fact, our our, our natural tendency to reject Jesus means there has to be a supernatural work in him. It's written in the prophets, they'll all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who's from God, only He has seen the Father. And looking at those verses, it's very densely packed teaching, which I take it as a summary of something which Jesus would have taken a bit more length to teach than it takes me to read it out. The thing that each of those verses has in common is that Jesus is absolutely dependent on the Father. So you can study those verses for yourself. In other words, he's responding to their accusation by saying, I'm not claiming anything for myself by saying I came down from heaven. Everything I do, even when people come to trust in me, it's the Father's work. Everything I do depends on him. But that's the first accusation. How can he say he's come down from heaven? We saw him grow up. But then he continues with his big claims. Remember, as we saw before the break, verse 50. Here is a bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So once again, the accusation, people just think it's absolutely outrageous teaching. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give give us his flesh to eat? And of course, when you first see these words, you do think, well, that is very strange, isn't it? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, it's a very strange thing to say. And they're, they're finding this very difficult to take. But he continues, verse 53. He tells them, it's essential. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's him teaching the essential nature of receiving him. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and it's better than the manna. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And it's that that leads up to these people saying, Hard is this teaching. Who can accept it? And they're grumbling about him. And the people who are grumbling are the people here called his disciples. And that doesn't mean the twelve. We will see what happened to them a little bit later on. But it's clearly people who I've identified with Jesus, who are turning out to listen to him, um, who call themselves in a broad sense his followers. And they leave. They want to leave. How does Jesus answer this? Well, 
The first heading that I've got there on the sheet, I want to expand it a bit and give you a heading of ridiculous length. Okay, so um, let me just uh, tell you how I reshape the heading. Jesus' teaching here will inevitably give offence because of the shape of the gospel and the nature of the human heart. Now, that's a terribly long heading because it's almost the whole point, but I'll give it to you again. Jesus' heading Jesus' teaching here will inevitably give offence because of the shape of the gospel and the nature of the human heart. Verses 61 and 62. Aware that his disciples are grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Where he was before refers to the central claim of John's gospel, uh, as we've seen, comes again and again, that Jesus is... uh, God the Son, who's come into our world. He's come down from heaven. But where he was before was with uh, the Father in heaven. What? He says, if you find that hard to take, what if you were to see him go back to heaven? Now, I puzzled over this. Why would that be something that would be offensive to them? Why would that be something which they'd find even harder to take than, uh, than him coming? the idea of him coming down into the world? I think it's the idea that they in the end, won't be able to bear the thought that the carpenter of Nazareth could be the one who's been appointed to be in charge of the world with all the claims that he makes. And in the end, it's an attitude of heart for them that they don't want to receive him as Lord. They may want to make him a political king, but they don't really want him as Lord of all. And what Jesus is doing in this verse is he's looking at the facts of the gospel and he's saying, Such are the facts, the fact of the incarnation and the cross, and such is the human heart that these things are bound to collide and cause offence. They're bound to. Let's just explore that for a a minute or two. So you and I know that the, the basic facts of the Christian message are absolutely wonderful. Think about the incarnation. I love that great Christmas verse, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. It's such a great verse. It's a great verse to use with your friends because it plays them completely onside. That's the reason they, they say they're agnostic. You say the Bible says that too. No one's ever seen God. So your guess is as good as mine, isn't it? If that's, if that's where it finishes. But God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. How marvelous that the eternal God has spoken and revealed himself to us. And that's what you and I depend on today. So we don't need to be hunting in the dark. Then there's the wonderful, wonderful truth of the cross. John 6.51, my flesh which I give for the life of the world and everything that goes with that. My debts cancelled. My sins forgiven. Fellowship with my maker restored. I'm reconciled. I'm his son. I have... The prospect of an eternity uh, with him in glory. All because of the death of his son on the cross. The most marvellous truth. Or John 6.62, he will go back to where he came from. He will ascend. He will be, he is the one who's been appointed to be Lord of all. What a wonderful thought that the universe should be run by such a person as Jesus. But it is inevitably also in the nature of the case that's the same wonderful truths that we find so wonderful are deeply personally challenging. For if they're true, if it's true that God has made himself known, then your guess is no longer as good as mine about God. And a sort of peaceful coexistence where we all rub along and say we don't, none of us really know, so we've just got to tolerate each other, is over. I remember illustrating this at a, um, an all-age service. 
um, this, this, this verse by having, uh, uh, having uh, somebody at stand completely covered with a massive blanket. And we played a guessing game. Um, they, they, I managed to get them to come in with a blanket so nobody knew who it was. Who is this person? Is this male or female or, um, uh, you know, what, uh, what kind of person are they? And uh, we could play a guessing game, and none of us really knew. Then you take the blanket off, and it's revealed to be on a church warden or somebody. And, uh, and, and, and now we know. And your guess is no longer as good as mine. And that's the flip side of the incarnation. And it's the thing that leads to Christians being accused of arrogance and so on. But it's because God has made his truth known. Then there's the truth of the... Uh, well, so, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I was on a, um, uh, helping on a a main event at uh, uh, Oxford University, and I met a, a student there who said uh, he liked to think of God as a mystery. I said, what if God made himself known? No, he said, I'd prefer him to stay as a mystery. I thought that was quite interesting. Because when God is mysterious and far away, he doesn't interfere with my life. Then the, the wonderful truth of the cross. See, that's also deeply challenging because it's so humbling. It's saying, well, I cannot save myself. It's actually saying, I've got a terrible problem with sin. A problem that is so serious that it requires the death of God's only son to deal with it. I can't sort myself out. I'm a, a helpless sinner in need of rescue. And I need to eat his flesh and drink his blood and receive him into my life. Independence is a very humbling thing. And of course lots of people don't like that. And then to say that he's the Lord of all makes it a critical question how we respond to him. He doesn't come to us uh, simply as another teacher. He comes to us as Lord and King and Master, which presses upon us the question of, will I submit to him or will I continue in rebellion against him? It's personally challenging and leaves no space for neutrality. And that's the point. Jesus' teaching will inevitably give offence because of the shape of the gospel and the nature of the human heart. Um. My colleague Charlie Newcomb has uh, an eccentric habit of collecting Marmite jars. And he's got a whole cabinet, I don't know how Emma puts up with it, in their sitting room of Marmite jars of all shapes and descriptions. And I've written down here, Marmite gospel. Okay, so we use that expression. We sometimes say a person's like Marmite, don't we? Because uh, people either love them or hate them. But the gospel is wonderful to those who are being saved. Paul tells us that, doesn't he? He actually says, doesn't he? It's the, it's the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved, but it's the stench of death to those who are perishing. Same message. It's in the nature of the message. We have the most wonderful truth. I say it again. Christmas, we celebrate God making himself known by becoming one of us. And every Easter, that the Lord Jesus died for our sins. And we, we think about the wonderful revelation of the love of God in that. And... Uh, the fact that we can have personal access to God because of his death. Risen Lord and Saviour, our King and our friend. And yet, still we find ourselves saying that because salvation is only through him, you must come to him, and people think that's too narrow. We say you must eat and drink of him. It's too, it's too personal. That we, we, we talk about his blood, it's too humbling. And we live in a world which would much rather have a Jesus who is accommodating or just an inspiring teacher. Although, of course, if that's all the Jesus we want, then we shouldn't try celebrating Christmas or Easter. So again, we see from here that Jesus' teaching will inevitably give offence because of the shape of the gospel 
and the nature of the human heart. Now the second thing. Jesus' words bring life, although many reject them. Verse 63. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Now that's a verse that people have uh, puzzled over. Let me give you two possible ways of understanding that. One is to say, when Jesus says, the words I've spoken to you are, are spirit and life, he's saying, um, I don't want you to take this thing about eating my flesh and drinking my blood uh, physically and literally, obviously. And there's a lot to be said for that understanding because clearly it is metaphorical. And quite rightly, we want to uh, we want to avoid moving into the heresy of transubstantiation, the idea, for instance, of the Lord's Supper, that we physically eat Jesus uh, and uh, drink his physical blood. Um, but actually, uh, important though that is, I, I would probably plump for a second way of understanding this in its context, which is that he's saying... He's talking about the power of his words to bring life. And that's because in verse 63, it's the Spirit. He must be talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit gives life. The flesh, that's human effort, counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, these words, which you're finding so difficult, are the very words which bring life. Incidentally, if you're worried about the fact that he doesn't necessarily say, uh, by the way, it's a metaphor, uh, we don't read any of the other I am sayings of Jesus in a, in a literal way. And he says, I'm the light of the world. We don't imagine him literally having sort of photons coming out of him. Or, I'm the vine. He walks around looking like a tree. And, and it need not be the case here either. It's quite clearly a metaphor for a spiritual reality. But what he's saying here in saying, uh, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to your spirit and life is that these very words which are causing all this offense... And upsetting everybody are the very words which bring life. And of course, that's the case. The word of the gospel is a word that brings life. I love it in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus tells those different uh, parables about uh, uh, sowing seed. And the seed is the word. And there's the parable of the sower, and, the, and then there's the parable of the the, the um, the bloke who puts the seed in the ground and then just eats and sleeps and gets on with life and it comes up all by itself. And the point he's making, at least one of the points he's making there, is that the word is, is, is living in its results. The farmer doesn't go along putting ball bearings in the earth. He puts seeds in the earth and new life comes as a result. Perhaps if you've, um, I think you did 1 Peter at this weekend last year, 1 Peter 1, uh, you can just jot it down again. If you ever want a spiritual biology lesson, the facts of life, uh, how reproduction works in the church, it's all there in 1 Peter 1.23. You can look, look that up later and, uh, and have an education in the facts of life. But it starts with the word of God. So that's what he's saying. The very same words which you're offended by are the words which bring life. Yet, verse 64, there are some of you who don't believe Jesus had known from the beginning which of them didn't believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, that's why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless, come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Because the gospel collides with sinful human hearts, it takes a supernatural work of God for us to receive these very words. 
And if you became a Christian in adult life, it may be that you can you can recall the struggle that it was in your heart to receive Jesus and a real sense of battle. And be thankful as you look back that it was God who enabled you to trust in him. And because of this unbelief, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, John... Of course, he's reporting simply what Jesus says. Jesus has put these things together for a reason. He wants us to know that for those who are investigating the gospel, the fact that lots of people go and uh, are put off by hearing the Christian message shouldn't put you off. Think about the words that you've heard, which have caused so much offense. They're actually the gateway to life. But John's gospel is also a bit of a training manual for Christians. And I think one of the things the Lord is preparing us for is he's saying, expect this and don't give up. We're always tempted to tone down the message, but the same words that cause offence are the very ones that bring life. A surgeon's knife is a, is a sharp thing, isn't it? Uh, but surgery is, and surgery is, a, is a, in a sense, a nasty thing that these people think are sore afterwards, but it needs to be done. And the gospel is a, is a sharp-edged sword, in a sense, uh, and it will cause offence to some, but the very words also bring life. So a memo to you as a church and to our church, keep making these words known. Memo to myself when I'm talking to people about Jesus. I mustn't leave out the bits of the message which I am, uh, like his exclusive claims. I need to make those known. <laughs> If people are to find life, I need to tell people the whole gospel. I just need to tell them the truth that I rejoice in, even though I know it will cause offence to some. Memo to anybody fixing a talks programme, whatever in your school CU or anything else like that, whatever else you do, you need to get this essential gospel across. I was reminded of this, that when I, um, Matt was interviewing the first night, I mentioned that I'd been a school teacher. We had a series of Lent talks in the school every year, in this, in this big boarding school. And uh, they were very unpopular on the staff, because um, uh, every year when these Lent talks happened, no other evening meetings were allowed in the school for three nights. And the reason it was unpopular was because the Lent talks were normally so boring that only about uh, 25 or 30 of the boys came to hear these things. They'd have, they were supposed to be Christian, but you get one religious person after another coming to talk about some aspect of uh, uh, sort of vaguely Christian philosophy or something like that. Well, one year, rather marvellously, a Bible teacher came. And um, he was given the opportunity, as these speakers, these Lent talks always were, to speak in this school chapel on the Sunday morning. And um, that's good because it's compulsory. So you've got 500 of them in there. And you can imagine them all sitting there creaking on the benches and, and rather sort of well-heeled parents who've come down to take their sons out for the day sitting around the place. He got up to the pulpit and he, he, he preached on the, on the parable of the rich fool. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so effectively that one parent I discovered later had been to seek out a Baptist pastor near his home in Yorkshire for some spiritual counsel following this talk. Well, the following evening was the first night of these uh, things, and uh, of, of the actual Lent talks. Instead of the 25, 250 boys turned up. And the next night, 300, the next 350. And uh, it was a very fruitful a very wonderful thing for lots of people to hear about Jesus. And I learned a lesson from that. Don't flinch 
from speaking the truth clearly. Um, of course, tactfully, and of course, winsomely, and of course, with respect to those that we're speaking to. But the same truth that offends, the same words that offend, are the words that bring life. Well, finally, here in verses 67 and following, what about you? Verse 67. Well, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. What a thought that would have been. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's had the TARDIS experience. Uh, isn't becoming a Christian a TARDIS experience? You think it's some small thing from the outside. You walk in the door and it's as big as this room or whatever the TARDIS is on the inside. There's an awful lot to discover. It's a wonderful experience. And he's come to know enough of Jesus to know that Jesus has the words of eternal life. He's never going to find anything like this anywhere else. So that's tough and lots of people have moved away. He's going to stay with Jesus. He's come to know that his words are true. And he says, we believe, uh, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Nowhere else in the world will we find anything like this. And of course, one of the lovely things about being part of a church such as yours, uh, or in God's mercy such as ours, where you, you meet people who are becoming Christians as the, as the months and years go by, is you hear them and see them discovering it afresh for the first time. And uh, how what they've now found in Jesus beats hands down anything else they've had before. Because he has the words of eternal life. And I'd love to finish there. But there's still verse 70. Then Jesus replied, Haven't I chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That's where this section finishes, on a rather sour note, because there was, of course, Judas, who himself was going to desert. And I think that's probably there, not to discourage us, but just to remind us that Jesus asks each of you and me that same personal question. What about you? Which way will you go? Well, let's just uh, conclude. We've covered a lot of ground since we started the beginning of the chapter. We saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which flags up who Jesus is and that we must listen to him, the prophet that God sent into the world, but much more than that, the one who can do what only the creator can do. And the same was true of the walking on the water. We saw some lessons in discipleship from those things. We saw the big lesson of the feeding of the 5,000 was... Uh, this metaphor of bread, Jesus being the bread of life, who's able to nourish us in a way that was better than the manna that came through Moses. Not just now, but for eternal life. It's freely available to us, like the bread that he gave out. We get this just by believing in him, not having to work for it. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he's sent. Why the metaphor? Because we need to receive him in absolute dependence, not just to admire him. We've been reminded of how he gave himself for us. He came down from heaven and gave his body for the life of the world, as we're going to be reminded of again in a moment. And then at the end, we are reminded that the very teaching which brings life also brings opposition. Some will be offended. Others will find new life in it. Keep on with Jesus. He has the words 
of eternal life. Let's pray together as we finish looking at this section. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything we've learned here. And we know that the same words which are so exclusive and controversial are the very words which bring eternal life. No one gives what you give. And please help us to hold on to your words and to keep making them known. Amen.